From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this afternoon with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow is here back. I think we missed him last week. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Weiner is here. We're coming to you via Zoom as we have been for the last two and a half years, coming up on three years since the pandemic. But it means that we are able to mostly all be here most weeks of the year. This is Tuesday. We've been recording Tuesday afternoons mostly. And this is Tuesday. The semifinal, the first semifinal of the World Cup is going on. Um, notably, gentlemen, this is the last show of the year, the last show of 2022 for Moneyball. We're going to be away. Well, we know we're going to be away the week after Christmas. We might be here next week. There's some chance that we'll be here next week. Um, before we get started, since we may not be around for the rest of the time, I'm curious, can we touch on COVID briefly before diving into sports? Is there anything that you want to say or share or any insights you have as we roll into the holidays? It's been away from our minds for a while, I think many of us, but there is more activity going on. There's all kinds of sickness rolling around the Northeast, not just COVID, but a couple things, anything we need to know about where we, the world is on COVID. And then two, from a practical perspective, any advice or any guidelines you have for yourself as you roll into the holidays and the travel and the family gatherings, what do you think is important to keep in mind? What do you think is something maybe we cannot worry about? I'm curious about your orientation and any prescriptions you have given the current situation in the world. Adi. Well, um, ahead, I, I'm going to start. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of illnesses we haven't seen much of in the last three years that are just flying around everywhere. Um, my daughter just had not the flu and she had norovirus, uh, stomach ache, and uh, there's RSV all over the place. Uh, that's that's a respiratory syntactical virus. Never heard of it before. Um, turns out it's fairly common, but this year it's just absolutely everywhere. You have you have sort of obviously you still have abundant. Uh, COVID, but I don't seem to see that it differs in any way from anything else that's happening um, and, and, and spreading. Um, so I, I, I think we're sort of like on, on catch-up mode for three, three years of where COVID pushed out um, what they call viral displacement, so many other things. Um, I feel particularly bad for young, you know, like young kids who didn't get exposed to lots of viruses and, and illnesses and infections that are just that you're supposed to get when you're kids um, to to build up healthy immune systems. Um, one thing that, that I can tell you that we, most people are doing, I think sensibly is when you have active symptoms, stay out of the way of other people. Um, but I actually, I, that's where I kind of end it. Once, once you're, once you don't have symptoms, I think you should go back to normal. That's what, so the only real way quickly to- by what, by what means do you stay out of the way of other people? Well, like my daughter didn't come to Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, I think in some level she wasn't, and may, maybe you would have thought about it in another, okay. another, uh, okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I guess, yeah, this is not COVID specific. In fact, I just think one lasting effect of COVID is I think it's changed our norms as far as how we be fa- behave in the presence of infectious illnesses. You know, now, I mean, I think, you know, there's more of an, you know, onus or, or, or more of a responsibility that when you get sick, whether it's COVID or it's a cold or it's a flu, you kind of isolate yourself from others. You wear a mask if you're like going to be in, in, you know, on like on a plane or something like that, if you have symptoms, et cetera. 
And, you know, I, I don't see COVID as any more all that different from anything else. I mean, the one major part is we've got a specific test for it. So, you know, we, we you know, we can we can actually identify whether the particular sickness we have is COVID or not. But whether it's a head cold, whether it's rhinovirus versus the flu or COVID or whatever, I think our norms have changed a little bit about how we do have kind of, you know, isolate more when we're actually mm-hmm. sick. We don't try and power mm-hmm. through work, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's actually perfect that I'm going to go after Shane because I get to build on what he said. I think the thing that goes through my mind now isn't so much because of the current version of, of the coronavirus, isn't so much about myself. It's about who am I going to see? Am I going to see someone that has you know cancer or possibly a compromised mm-hmm. immune system? Am I going to see somebody like my mother who's 90 years old where even if COVID is not necessarily as severe as it was, it'd still be very severe for a 90-year-old person. And so to me, that's what I think where we should be thinking today. And Mm -hmm. if I was ill, as uh, Shane and Adi said, I think he said his daughter didn't come to Thanksgiving. If I was ill, I would not be around someone uh, that was possibly compromised. And certainly if I had coronavirus, until I tested asymptomatically, and we do have measures that allow me to test, I definitely wouldn't be around other people. You don't mean test asymptomatically, you mean test negatively, don't you? Test negatively, sorry, test mm-hmm. negatively, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to reiterate and to sum up, and and I think my main three are all three that y'all have mentioned. Um, one one is to, is this elderly issue, the, the vulnerable, because on the one hand, we think, well, we just need to adapt to the new world of coronavirus. That's all fine and good, but for those that are most vulnerable, and we just need to be especially sensitive to that, especially as we start gathering with family in multiple generations. Two is um, to test. Testing still available, and I th- you know we, we we used to test a lot, and I will admit that I finally got caught with COVID for the first time in two and a half years. And, but I, it was so far from my mind that I only tested because my wife more or less made me. And I wouldn't think about it. I never, never would have thought I had COVID. And I sure enough did. And of course, then you have to be real careful about because it can be so dangerous in some populations, you've got to take extra caution. So testing, don't forget that the ease of testing, we, we longed for those tests for a long time and now they're widely available. And then three is, as Shane said, the new norms around masking. I mean, it's just um, far beyond COVID. There's good value in masking. And historically, that just wasn't something that was done in this, in this U.S. culture. And going forward, this statement maybe a year and a half. Well, I have to say, I have to say, uh, Tate, I don't think you're, I don't think I agree with you. Um, I think. Other cultures mask when they when the individuals have symptoms. They do that when they're out and about because they have a cold and they don't want other people to be exposed. What you've been advocating and what you sound like you're advocating is prophylactic masking. And there isn't any good evidence of that. And 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 we've talked about in our show repeatedly. And there is actual uh, randomized. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. on. You're jumping on something. uh, Just to clarify, I mean, uh, you know, I, I I was I was kind of considering. The statements, at least I made about masking, I don't know about K, but the statements I made about masking was specifically if you're symptomatic. Right, right. Okay, so I want to make mask. sure you clarify that. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> hold on. Yeah. I, no, I, I want to make the same clarification, except I don't want to, you know, I, Adi's got a got a sod of, uh, an axe to grind here, I think. I, oh, I, meant, yeah. I meant symptomatic <laughs> maxing because yeah. it's something that culturally the U.S. hasn't done that historically. Mask or something, if you saw someone in a mask, 95% chance that they were not from the U.S. because yes. it's just not so something we did culturally. 
And so I think that's different now beyond just COVID, as Shane said. I think it should be different beyond just COVID. But I, I want to make it clear, though, and this is what this this does. Uh, I mean, I can tell some anecdotes to back it up. Just, but there isn't good data that that prophylactic masking has any effect. And there actually been extensive data on masking prior to COVID, particularly with regard to flu. And the subjects who masked consistently had no substantive difference in rates of illnesses. And, and by prophylactic, you don't mean, I think I might be sick. You mean, I don't want to get sick. I'm going to protect yeah, yeah, myself I mean. from other people. I don't want to get sick. Okay, I don't want to get sick, so I'm going to mask. And, and you're saying that. there's there's questionable, ev- there's not evidence that this no, is No, there's none. And um, and and that, that could be because people don't wear it right, but, but the rates are too small, et cetera, et cetera. You, I'm not going to get into the causes of why we don't see evidence for that. But there are uh, there is still a, in certain pockets of uh, of society, which is, I think, particular to America. My my I've talked about them repeatedly on my show. My Montreal cousins came back for a for a wedding and they're like, what's with the masks in the United States? You, you know, that they, they're gone. And, and so much of the world, they're gone everywhere. In certain pockets of the United States, you see large fractions of people when in communal settings wearing masks. And that's prophylactic masking. And that's well, see, not, but, but Adi, it's not, it doesn't come advertised. I mean, we don't know. There's not written on the outside of the mask. This is prophylactic versus I'm symptomatic. No, but when you go to, so I, I attended my, my, I, you know, I was up in, in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I went to synagogue with my son. And, you know, at the very end of the service, it, 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 there is usually the kids come up and lead the, the last song. And there was a, a, a wonderful uh, troop of young, young uh, five, three, three to seven year olds. Every single one of them was wearing a mask. <laughs> And I was just like, just my, my, my face was, my mouth is dropping open. I'm like, what is going on? These are not sick kids. These are, these are, uh, people have digested an idea that masks, masking are good for, and protective. And, and I don't, A, don't believe that. And number two, or at least substantively enough, particularly when we're in a lull. And secondly, the consequences of masks, particularly to children, do not um, make it worthwhile. Okay. okay. Well, see, we got to talk about this every now and then to let Adi let this pressure out. We've got a little relief well, valve yeah, and let I, him, and let him go. But I, you got, I do want to say you got to be a little careful about being too judgy about masks if you want them to, if they want symptomatic people to mask. Because, I mean, in that the case you just gave, it was relatively clear that it was prophylactic. But in general, it's not clear. And if you're all judgy about what looks prophylactic to you, you're going to inhibit people wearing it for symptomatic reasons. Or, I mean, another way to say it, I mean, I think it's telling that on like plane rides now, it's not we recommend you wear a mask or we recommend you don't wear a mask. It's just like, let's all just please chill about everybody's choices. If, it, if somebody's wearing a mask, don't give them a hard time. Good. If somebody's yeah. not wearing a mask, don't That's give them a hard Canadian, time. That's very Canadian, Shane. It's very, very Canadian. Perfect. Perfect place for a little Canadian tolerance. <laughs> yeah, it's spoken by someone with wonderful hearing. <laughs> and I'll just say the following. If I was worried about COVID and its impact on my personal health or the people that if I got it, I would give it to, I would prophylactically mask. Yes, I would. I would. And I, don't, and I, and I, think, I, represent, I, I think I represent a large fraction of the population that has seen evidence that wearing a, a proper mask does actually help reduce the propensity of getting COVID. Yeah, well, okay. let's not, let's not, no, 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 let's not go any further down this road because I think that we're getting into subtleties and we've, we've kind of, played enough COVID cards for the year. I just wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to touch on this a little bit going into the holidays because two things, one, there are these gatherings or multi-generational gatherings, and we're in an uptick. Um, we've been in an uptick for the last couple of weeks and we've got these other things floating around. 
Um, guys, let's flip it over to sports. Um, we've got a couple of interviews on the show. We're going to have an interview in Q2. We've got an interview in Q4. We've got a little time to talk open subject, open lines now. We'll do it again in Q3. I'm curious what's top of mind, but I'm going to have to offer up front because we're recording on Tuesday afternoon and they're playing the semis of the World Cup right now, Argentina and Croatia. Tomorrow, France and Morocco, of course. We've, we've just come through the quarters. I happened to miss soccer on the day that seemed perhaps most extraordinary of any day of the tournament, the two quarters that were played on, was it Friday? Um, or was it, yeah, it was Friday. Um, just absolutely extraordinary. Any observations on the World Cup in general? Well, I mean, my, I, I, was, I, I was very excited to see, um, you know, a couple new, you know, some new blood make it into the semis. We have two teams that have never won it before making the semis. Of course, we're literally, I'm literally just watching one of them get knocked out right now. So, I mean, my kind of, my, my big hope oh, was that one of these finals. teams. Croatia made the finals four years ago, so they're not exactly. Yeah, but they're not going to make blood. it this time. They just got <laughs> I know that, Argentina. But they're not. So, our, our, you know, it's it's down to Morocco as far as a team that has not won it, as far as a team that's not one of the big ones that have won it all before. So, if, if you're kind of cheering for a new team winning it all, we're down to one. Morocco has to beat both France and then Argentina. And that's, you know, you know something, that's, something that's, only, why teams, only eight. that's why new teams don't win it very often. Where was that's France right. in our list of top? Were they top five? France or France, top eight? Yeah, yeah. They were, uh, yeah, they they were top five. France was four. France, France was ranked four. Because I remember in the France England game, France was four and England was five. I can't remember uh, what, whether we settled on three or four teams needed to get fifty percent of the probability. Well, I mean, I I, I I offered up mine. My uh my my eighty percent probability set was Brazil, Argentina, France, and Spain. Uh, and what was 50? Oof, oof, that's that's that in general. I mean, well, we, we usually play the 50-50 game. 80 is a little harder to get my head around, but it's 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 hard for me to get back to my naive pre-tournament position, Shane, but that sounds like a narrow set for 80%. But we didn't know then how uncertain the Four Cup was going to be, even if we end up with France, Brazil. Could be France. after tomorrow, I'm guaranteed, right? It, it, uh, that's it's right. It's probably going to be France against Argentina. That's right, yeah. and but we did that. We did. We didn't, we didn't know, know at the beginning. But I mean, again, my no, Shane. That, my point is, my point is that the thing turned out to be much more unpredictable than we expected, and then might appear obvious after the fact once we get down to the last two. Or, or it could be like every other World Cup, where it looks unpredictable, and then it's chalk at the end anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that now you, you just know, you know, I'm excited about Morocco and Croatia, and then it's, you know, it's you know, France but, against. But hold on, hold on, hold on. We got to give credit to Morocco being the first African team to ever make the semis. I oh, mean, yeah. just, be- just because two heavyweights end up in the finals can doesn't I, mean I, that the tournament wasn't. Un- that's, un- no, that, that's I, right. I, I was, that's uh, right. One, one of my, yeah, one of my colleagues, is. can I make a World Cup comment? Uh, one of my colleagues gave me an insight, which I, I'd share with you guys and tell me what you think. Um, one of the things about World Cup is that it's actually not the best soccer in the world, that the World Cup consti- constituated teams <clears> are the best players on any team, but there are professional teams that collect the best players around the world. They're actually much better. And sure. that this is, uh, and that's something yeah. that, that I guess I knew, but I didn't understand. But one of the reasons why some of the early rounds can, can get these upsets is that a national team from a smaller country is has experience playing each other. So they actually play mm. better. Um, yeah. And then when they're playing against a, a top, top team, um, let's say, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia guys played, I get, uh, who, do they, who do they beat in that first Argentina, round? Argentina, the one that's Argentina. just went to the finals. And, and that Argentina is looking like they are a big favorite to win the whole thing. How did that blow up? Well, 
Saudi Arabia plays together all the time. And so yeah. with they have the more opportunity to for a bigger upset because they're so used to um, taking advantages of uh, of the 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 initial play of these teams. It just kind of got configured for, for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. To say, I think if Morocco wins the World Cup, I think I'll safely say it's the greatest upset in all of sports. Let me say why. Here's the four teams they will have beaten if they win the World Cup. They beat Spain in the round of 16. They beat Portugal in the quarterfinals. They will have beaten France in the semifinals and then Argentina in the finals. You yeah. beat Spain, Portugal, <laughs> France, and Argentina. I'm handing you the supersized World Cup. Yeah. No, yeah. that's why it's incredibly hard to get new. <laughs> that's why it's hard to do. Going all the way through is that you're, you got to win an under a crazy under, you got to be win as underdogs like four times in a row, minimum. Yeah. Okay, not, just, not just underdogs, Shane. Underdogs against teams that everybody would have had in the top maybe five to seven teams. Yeah. I mean, Spain, Portugal, France, and Argentina. You're not playing, you know, you're not playing, I'll call it, not that the Netherlands is not good and the Belgium, you're playing four historic powerhouse teams. It's a, it's a, it's a great point. It gives us one more reason to pull for him because that would be quite a run. Let's note that the odds on Tamara Simi against France, the three way odds. So this is during regulation time, France win, Morocco win or a draw. Morocco win is plus 650. So it's, it's pretty long that they'll, that they'll take it uh, in regulation. Let me also just say, by the way, Morocco in the entire tournament has given up one goal and that's an own goal. So let me just say, by the way, that gives them a puncher's chance. I mean, you can't win if the other team can't score. Now Mm -hmm. I'm not saying France isn't going to score. I'm just saying Spain, zero goals, Portugal, zero goals, Belgium, zero goals. These are not inferior weak teams. Mm -hmm. I'm saying Morocco, you know, if I were a betting man, Plus 650 on them being able to have it 0 0 into. No, uh, no, the, the, the draw. That's on them winning no, no. in regulation. 650 is winning in regulation. The draw. Oh, I'm not quite sure why the betting odds like still take into account the tie thing. Like, why, you know. No, no, there's a like, third option. Three way. Right. What's the draw? Yeah, why, is it, why is there a three way betting option to bet on kind of like. That's because those are the three anyway. big outcomes. They don't, and they don't, they don't, I guess, I don't know why they don't have two way with penalty like they, kicks they, they, in, they, in the knockout rounds. Like like if Morocco wins, but on penalty kicks, that doesn't count. You know, it doesn't, that's right. it doesn't actually, they, they do. They do have Shane, something the draw, called. There is the a draw. money line bet. There is right. a money line bet. There's that's why soccer and betting is a little more complicated. There's a two way just money line bet. Who wins the game? Count overtime. Count extra time. Count PKs. Whatever. Then yeah. there's a separate, as Cade mentioned, regulation three. Oh, okay, so three, yeah. three it, it resolves at 112. It resolves at like 90 minutes, regardless. Correct. Yeah, so what's the draw? What, what what's the draw bet? You plus three hundred. Plus three hundred. Yeah. Wow. So twenty five percent chance of a draw. So most of the weight of their getting through would come through a draw. Yep. Um, guys, uh, our guest a few weeks ago, we had Ryan O'Hanlon on. We're on a streak of soccer guests, which has been good fun because of the World Cup, and I think it's allowed us to get a little deeper. Our fourth quarter guest today is another. And with another angle and a real insider, Javier Fernandez is on in Q4. But we had Ryan O'Hanlon in a couple of weeks ago. He had a has a book out, a, a great book on um, soccer, and it was a terrific interview. And he has a an article on ESPN, kind of his take on the World Cup here near the end. He tweeted today an excerpt from that article. The whole article I'd recommend it. Again, Ryan O'Hanlon on ESPN. But the, let me just read you the excerpt because I think it captures well something that I appreciate more this time around than ever before. And we've talked about it on the show. Here's O'Hanlon. The story here, just like last time, 
is that it's really hard to kick a bouncing ball into a goal, even when you have maybe the most talented collection of attackers in the world doing the kicking. I'm sorry to keep simplifying down to the language of a 10-year-old, but that's what these games are about. The results aren't indicators of some national moral fiber or emotional strength or brilliant game planning. Sometimes the ball goes in, sometimes it doesn't, and then one team gets to move on. May we all accept how silly these matches are. Well, when you speak about that, I mean, I, I think about, you know, I think it's a very good chance France wins it all, but we'll see. Argentina looked great today, but England was the better team, in my view, in that England-France game. And I think sure. all the advanced metrics suggest that England was the better team, but mm-hmm. France put two in the net and England put one in the net. Mm-hmm. And and also the two England, one England put in the net, they didn't actually score. They scored on penalty kicks. They missed one, made one, missed one, Harry Kane. Um, they could not, whether it's through a, a set piece or just in regular play, they could not put the ball in the net, and they had much better chances. They had more opportunities. Their expected goals was higher. There were so many metrics that favored England, and France won two to one. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's but, the thing is, I mean, you know, I, I I totally agree with Ryan's sentiment. What makes me think like it's a very random sport because it's like one or two kicks that happen to go in versus not. So we should see, like, like it's a random sport. Where you know any but anything can happen, but then again, at the end. Okay, how do you reconcile that? Shape? Okay, hold on, hold on. How do you reconcile that? I agree with I that characterization. So how do you reconcile that? Okay, well, you here's what you could reconcile it. One way to reconcile it is is that think about a line, think about teams having strengths on the line. There's a lot of bunching in the middle, but in the far right tail, while there is randomness. There's a lot of spacing on the right tail of the distribution. And we I mean, the can't. Best, the best teams are noticeably the best different teams. from the next best teams. And, and there's potentially a big gap. This was why I think Shane's pick of four to 80% wasn't irrational. There's a big gap, just like you've mentioned to us, Kate, in college football. You were thankful that OSU make it. I made it, I think, because whether it's Massey Peabody or whether it's ESPN, FPI, et cetera, um, those are the best teams by a large margin. I think the same is true in soccer. I think there's four or five teams that are just much better than everybody else. There's not that much spacing between them, but there's a lot of spacing between them and the other teams. England and France are not the Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama. They're in that next tier down. So you know what? There's enough randomness between England and France that France wasn't necessarily the better team and they win. But if England plays, I don't know, if England plays Argentina or England played the U.S. and it was zero zero, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting. It's, it's also back. it's also possible that there are enough of those uh, blue bloods that you know between the separation and the fact that you might get four or five draws of getting a blue blood into the final. It's like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of chance, but some are much better than the others, and there's enough of them that almost yeah. invariably we end up with two of them in the finals. Exactly. Even though last last that time was, we didn't. Croatia that was Shane's was earlier argument that eventually you get to chalk. The other thing is this is related to a project that uh, Adi and I had talked about with one of our students, Ryan Brill, is that you know let's, let's say in baseball there's two sources of variation at least. One is is the pitcher having a good day, and then the second thing is there's just the randomness in the game. And so you can imagine in soccer, at least in every sport, there's two sources of variation, which is sometimes even Argentina loses to Saudi Arabia. And sometimes Argentina is the better team in the game and they just lose the game because of the randomness in the game. So there's two sources of variation. And I think in soccer, the 
within team, not within a game, sometimes a great team doesn't play great, maybe more so than in other sports. And also given it's a knockout round, that also leads to more upsets. But having that happen, as Shane described, I'm trying to rationalize the empirical finding, have that happen for four times. No, eventually Morocco is going to face the good France, the good Argentina, (laughs) the good Spain. It's not going to happen four times. And the other thing the Blue Bloods have beyond just better play, you know, kind of better first, you know, like kind of better starters, I guess, to use the NFL parlance. But they also, I think the the depth really helps at this extended tournament. These guys are tired. I mean, you know, three days between matches is not enough to really recover. And so Morocco has clearly good enough starters to kind of make it this far. But, you know, you know, a team like Argentina can probably field like a second team that like is still competitive. You well, know, we so talked, I think they're able a, to kind of handle, I think, the rest aspect or the the kind of endurance aspect of it better too. We we that's that I was blind to that as, as being soccer ignorant mostly, and we talked about it sometime the last couple of weeks. This the the virtue, the the benefits of having depth like that. You yeah. just start a different eleven over the course of the tournament, and some of your guys end up with more rest. And in fact, back to O'Hanlon in that piece on ESPN, he was writing about how can we understand what happened with each team. And when he writes about the U.S., he says, look, they had probably nine guys who were kind of elite world-class level players. And then he named the positions where they were a little weak. And he says, well, but even 11 is not what you need. To do well in the World Cup, you need 14 or 15 because it's this depth thing that Shane's talking about. You need to bring subs in after your first 11 that are at that level and you need to play a different starting 11 over the course of the tournament to rest some guys. It's a really interesting point that again, is something we appreciate more coming out, coming out of this tournament. Let me ask you one fundamental question I've never thought about before about, about football or other sports. Um, Why is the game 90 minutes long? This is kind of a game design. You know, we talk about tournament design. The game design is a vir- version of tournament design. Yeah. Why, why soccer 90 minutes? And you can ask the general question. Why, why is-, is the timing of it a mystery to everybody but one guy? I mean, like, there's a lot of questions. Well, hold on. Set that, set, set that aside. And I think the, from a okay. game design perspective, I think it's interesting. Why is, why is baseball nine innings? Why is American football 60 minutes? Why is basketball yeah i mean i kind of like like i don't know enough about early soccer history to see if that's like kind of like was the end result of a little bit of inter- experimentation but i mean you could imagine it being much longer like you you know you'd really have exhaustion kicking in and stuff like that and it would be action you, you know i mean because like again you know a, a, a more related question to yours is you know why do they go to penalty kicks why don't they just play keep playing overtime no, well, until somebody that, actually that's a, scores like hockey that's, does that's well, I'm really interested in this first question because it's a fundamental thing that we just blow right past all the time. And I think it must, there must be these things evolve. And so if you believe in, you know, no, things yeah. evolving rationally, I, I, but I, be guess, some I, I would guess the considerations are like on, you know, why not make it longer? Probably player exhaustion. Why not make it shorter? You'd have even less, you know, it's, it's, I guess the answer to 90 minutes is it seems long enough where you have a high, a somewhat high probability that something happens scoring wise but it's not too long that the players are falling down dead just so you know just so you know kate 
Um, it has not evolved in soccer since 1886. One eight. That's not 1886. <laughs> London and Sheffield were going to play each other. They agreed to two 45-minute halves, and it's been that way ever since. So, but isn't that kind of fascinating? Like, why why was that deemed the right amount? I, I think Shane's playing. Shane's playing with the only two parameters I can think of. That sounds about right. But those are interesting parameters, and it should vary by sport. I mean, it, it stands to reason that soccer, where they're they're expending energy virtually the entire time you might have a shorter match than, you know, I don't know, American football, they play for three hours, even though there's only 48 minutes or 60 minutes of playing time because they're not quite as continually active. I don't know. I'm making it up now, but wait, hold on. Must, go, Audie, yeah, please, please. Remember in football, not only they, they technically played for 60 minutes, but most of that time is not even any play. I think what is this it, is what, what is I'm saying yeah. It's 15 minutes in total. Um, then you got to hand it to, to soccer though. I, I think what basically Eric's comment means, it's probably just some, they just decided. And yeah. without really that much thought. And but when you watch when you watch the match, you do observe guys kind of tapping out. And right. it's like, so, what's, the, mean, what's the optimal amount of tapping out? Yeah. Like, where do you draw or, that or, or another way of, like, one way we could kind of get at this question of exhaustion is if we allowed unlimited substitutions where, you, for example, you could go on, rest, go off, rest a bit and go back on. What length of time would actually would they be able to kind of play at this, a similar level? Yeah. Like, you know, could you stretch it to two hours? Would you yeah. want to stretch it to two hours? Yeah. Like would stretching it to two hours mean there's actually an even greater chance of a score differential so that you didn't have to go to something arbitrary like penalty kicks. I mean, I think those are, you know, I would love them to experiment with that. Cause I think, you know, that would honestly, why I would rather they just had unlimited substitution. So you can just have the best, most well-rested people. There's a more strategy component to that anyway. Mm-hmm. It would, it would. I think we, I, we should just be statisticians here. So what would a statistician do, right? Let's say you have two teams, A and B, each one with, let's say, a given strength, and you're going to set the length of the game so that the probability of A beats B equals some number. Okay? Great. And to great, me, great. that would be a reasonable way to set it. If you set it really long, then it's not obvious which one, but let's assume Presumably, part, yeah. diminishing marginal returns, actually, yeah. where – Everyone gets fatigued, but that's how you would set it. It's and so to me, it's that's how I think about it. And I'm hoping, but we have no evidence of this unless in different leagues they play at different lengths. And so maybe we have some evidence, but we since we only have the 90 minute data point, we have no variation to know how teams of given assessed strengths, what the probability of the favorite winning as a function of the length. If we did, we could all decide we're happy with that number as for that probability. And there we go. But one of the, one of the, one of the, one of my instincts here is that, that the, the games typically evolve to similar answers to that question, Eric, that there's some optimal level of chance. It's not yeah. zero and it's not a hundred percent. And most games probably end up in a relatively similar place where the chance of the better team winning is likely but not determined. But you could also be a you could also just one second. You could also just one last thought. You could also be a theorem type person, which says, what are the properties of a system I would like? I'd like it to be monotone, which means I don't want to set the game too long where it starts to benefit the weaker team. I would like it that the better team still has a greater chance of winning than the weaker team. Like you could set some axioms. Mm-hmm. And then come up with a system that would say, I'm going to make sure it meets those axioms. And I think mm-hmm. that is a principled way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that what particularly Shane's proposals make me wonder not whether the game will change in fundamental ways. And if you change the length of it, and that has to be considered 
Yeah, I went. I had the, I actually went from, to my very first uh, professional hockey game this this past season. Uh, you, and I've been to college ones, but never a professional one. Oh, and what struck me is just how fast that game is. Unbelievably oh fast. And yeah. they have these lines that come circling in and out because it's so fast. And that's because they can do the substitution. Imagine if you had a longer game, people would probably, the game would just slow down because, or you'd have to allow the substitutions to right. speed it back up. And so it's not just the variable of time. It's also the variable of numbers of substitutions and whether they can come yeah, back. Yeah, that's why I you think know. you, 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 to really kind of explore that time parameter i think it would be only in the context where we've already kind of changed the game to allow for at least a lot more substitutions or unlimited substitutions but i will finish while my last thing i'll ever say about soccer for the year um (laughs) is that i believe that that analytics have a lot to say about substitutions that it has not been explored i would guess that that substitutions don't happen early enough um that it sure feels that way As as a martian it sure does feel that way I'm, I'm curious you know, what analytics say. You know, we see this in, in so many sports. I think it, basically in football, I think it's not, it's something for analysts to think about. Maybe they are on the teams and they don't talk about it. Um, but that just, you know, that's such, these games are so, so brutal on, on your body and that a fresh body, even with a, a less talented player, is potentially way better for a team. Well, you, well you, at the very least, you'd like to ask the question empirically. You'd like yeah. to, to, to see the analysis. I'm sure I'd people actually, have done that analysis. What I'd really like to do is get someone to do some experiments, but you know. <laughs> it's tough. Well, speaking of, real quickly, I will observe that the, the, the match, this, this exhibition golf tournament between Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods and Jordan Spieth and um, Justin, Thomas. Justin Thomas, uh, that was 12 holes. So there's an example of playing with the length that usually a match is 18 holes, and they decided to go 12 for exhibition purposes. Didn't even go 12. It was match yeah. play. It went 10. Match play, yes. so it didn't have to go 12, but it could have gone 12. Um, it could have gone more than 12. Um, but it's an interesting choice. They made some choice on what's an okay length of time to go. All right, guys, that's been a substantial Q1 on COVID and the World Cup. We've got three quarters of what Moneyball to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting here with two of my three collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner, are in for this segment. Shane is stepping away. You guys can jump into the conversation away when we wish that you would. Reach out to us on Twitter. Probably the best way to catch us is on Twitter. Our handle there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics, and we'd love to hear from you. Send us what you got. You can also catch our mailbag. You can send us an email. That address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your notes. Send us your suggestions. Send us your complaints. Send us your love. Whatever you got, we'd love to hear from you. In this segment, we're going to do the first of two interviews for this week. We have Nate Duncan coming back on the show. We got Nate late in the NBA season last year. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. He turned us on to some of what he's doing, and we thought of him as we begin thinking, slowly turning to basketball. We thought about Nate, and we wanted to get him back on the show. Nate, good afternoon. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, my pleasure, gentlemen. Always enjoy it. Where are you calling in from today or Zooming in from today? Berkeley, California, West right. Coast. This Let's is see it. the only place to cover the NBA because otherwise you're up until three in the morning. This is true. <laughs> you have some advantages. 
Now, you're, you're, what, what is the hat that you're wearing? I'm having a hard time making sense of the hat that you're wearing. Oh, it's uh, the hat that they gave all the draft prospects in the 2021 draft. So this is the one that they gave Cade Cunningham for when he was drafted by the Detroit Pistons. Okay, okay. Well, funny you mentioned him. Wasn't he just out for the season? Did we just learn that he's out for the season? Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a real bummer. He had this uh, stress reaction that's apparently been bothering him for six months or, or more. And we've seen a lot of players have this injury, have surgery, and come back okay. Uh, guys like Drew Holiday and Bradley Beal. But unfortunately, it means he's going to miss the rest of the season. But fortunately for Pistons fans, that puts them squarely in the Victor Wimbanyama <laughs> weepstakes hunt. This is true. This is true. How many teams are in that sweepstakes hunt? How many? What's the list you would say that are in that hunt? Well, with lottery reform, it's more than you would have had previously because the teams that are lower down have a shot at it. Uh-huh. But uh, the five worst teams in the NBA right now: Orlando, San Antonio, Houston, Detroit. And who am I forgetting? They are they're so forgettable, aren't they? Uh Charlotte. <laughs> okay. But you're saying, look, does. all the lottery teams have a shot at this thing. And in fact, they've muted the odds so that tanking has lower expected returns, is is the reform you're referring to, yes? Yeah, it's not necessarily all the lottery teams. Once you get above the uh, we'll call it the tenth worst record, the tenth seed in the lottery, then you're chances drop down to being pretty low but particularly because they increase the number of slots that are subject to the lottery from three to four and then they also uh, have flattened those odds it used to be the worst team at a 25 percent chance at the number one pick now uh, that's down in the mid-teens and right. so those those probabilities are distributed further down the ladder to teams in kind of the six to ten range okay well, listen, we're talking about the bottom of the order uh, at the we're past the quarter point now, but we're substantively into the season. We can start getting a sense of who's who's strong and who's not. We're talking about the bottom. Of course, we're interested in the top. Um, before we do that, real quickly, let's remind people where they can catch you, because when we thought about you this 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 season, we thought about you because you turned us on to your show last year, this NBA cast you do on NBA's League Pass. So this is an alternative cast. You you take a game that one could watch in other ways, but you're you're doing a more strategy oriented broadcast of this thing. And we caught you at the end of the season. I think we were able to see one of your one of your games before the playoffs started. And you guys rolled off of there. Curious how that has shaped up so far this year. Curious if you can remind everybody what that's all about and how they can catch it. Because in the little exposure that we had. That was fantastic. This is an entirely different way to watch a game. You get all the normal action, but you guys talk about the game in what we find is just a much more interesting way than traditional broadcasters do. Well, thanks for the kind words uh, on the show. Yeah, we've rebranded actually as the NBA strategy stream, hashtag NBA strategy stream on Twitter. We One of the things we do is we actually take questions from viewers uh, live on the air about any of the 30 teams and it's available on NBA league pass. The the price of which has declined to 99.99 this year. So it's about cut in half from -hmm. what it was previously. So it's a more accessible and Mm -hmm. it's in the NBA's app. You can find it. We do about one a week and we're just one of the viewing options. If you click on that game 
on the NBA's website or in the NBA's app, you can find us. And we're just trying to do a more X's and O's and analytics focused broadcast than what you might typically find. So it really appeals in theory to the hardcore fan. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how that, how your style in that show and how the show itself has evolved since you've been doing it. You you set out with, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an ambitious thing to do and a novel thing to do. And I'm sure you've learned a lot as you've gone. How, in what way is it different now than when you started? Yeah. So we started basically doing it for free where with the idea of eventually doing something like this uh, as a goal. And we started doing that back in 2016, 2017 season. So it really went about four years of doing it pretty much unpaid. You know, our Patreon subscribers would throw us a few bucks, but they weren't obligated to, Mm -hmm. uh, to thank us for doing it. But we just built up a, a lot of reps doing this. And back in those bad old days, you had to actually, sync up your tv with our commentary and we had all these tech hacks so that you could Uh find a way to do that and pause both of the streams some people were ahead some people were behind but we just got a lot of reps doing this i think as far as i know we're the ones who've done this the most and so the style has basically been i'm kind of the Mm play-by-play guy but also but basically doing play-by-play of the color. So just trying to point out what the color guy would be pointing out in real time. And Danny, also my partner, Danny LaRue, he comes up with a lot of great observations that he'll bring in more on the schedule of a color guy. And then he also really follows the the stats and analytics really closely and is kind of the lead when in between breaks, we stay on the air on NBA league pass and mm-hmm. we can Mm-hmm. You know, provide analytics, answer questions, et cetera. So that's that's kind of how it's evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Nate, I was going to ask, can you give our, our listeners here on what Moneyball an example of what an analytics observation might be during a basketball game? Like we always talk, one would obviously be, why did that person take that 20-foot jumper when they could have taken a 21-footer and that's worth three more than two? Or, you know, why is this person even on the court because their plus minus is so bad? Or, you know, what would be an example of something that you might observe that would then say, I'm going to kick in the analytics engine? By the way, Nate, just to give you background on Eric, in fact, if you, if you don't remember, he's a Sixers season ticket holder. So if you want to make it Sixers relevant, it might have even more resonance for him. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that, that we try to focus on is where teams are getting their shots. And I would say maybe the biggest thing we'll focus on is what trends in the game are sustainable and what are not, right? If you're seeing one team has just shot the lights out on three-pointers, but they weren't really getting <clears throat> shots at the rim. They weren't getting to the foul line. You know, So we we try to look at what trends are just outside the norm historically in the first half and say, all right, you know, this is to break it down more. All right, we know what the score is. We know what the stats were, but who's actually playing better, right? And, and we can use analytics to do that by saying, all right, this is going to regress. This is going to progress. And so that's kind of in a, more 10,000 foot view, what I enjoy doing the most is to almost try to be predictive about it and say, hey, you know, I know these guys are up by five, but fundamentally they're going to have to play better if they want to maintain that lead. Maybe they got a little bit lucky in this way that's not sustainable in the first half. Mm-hmm. And in and, and, and my watching, the way you do these things is not 
so different from watching a game that it just hits you over the head. I feel like it's educational without being jarring. You can imagine, you can imagine you throw up some doofuses like me and Eric and Adi, and we would turn it into a friggin' lecture and people would, we'd appeal to a very narrow niche. You happen to make it still like watching a basketball game. It's just more educational. And I truly want to evangelize this because I think it's a fantastic way to get deeper on basketball. Basketball is a game that we've all played since we were kids. And yet I think it's easy to sit in, watch a game and not really understand, you know, at, at halftime, which team is playing better unless you're, because we're just not deep enough. We're not sharp enough on it. And so if you can watch the game and enjoy it and learn along the way, all the better. Yeah. Not a lot of people don't want to watch the game with 97 screens up the way we do to get all this information. So hopefully we can impart that. And I really appreciate you saying that kid. Cause I, the greatest compliment I think we can get is that we help people become better fans, understand the game mm-hmm. on a little bit deeper of mm-hmm. a level, but not, so much to where it's inaccessible. And I think what Danny and I try to do is we trust that our audience is smart and that they're going to get it. And if there are some concepts we'll try that people may not be familiar with, uh, we'll explain them. Danny is really good at kind of helping me draw that aspect out as well. And so, yeah, it's great to hear that, that that's something that helps people just appreciate this great game uh, on an even deeper level. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I think I think if I'm not wrong, that the guys broadcasting the World Cup for U.S. audiences take on a little bit of this as well, that they are a little bit more educational in the way they, they, they comment the game than a traditional broadcaster would be because they realize the audience isn't as sophisticated. And so I actually appreciate it. I learn more about soccer by watching these games. All right. Let's change gears and then talk about the NBA. We we. We're kind of football obsessed around here. Some of us are baseball obsessed also, but it means that in football season and early basketball, early hockey, we're not paying as close attention as we ought to be. And we slowly start paying more attention over time. And now this year, the World Cup has delayed even that transition. So get us up to speed a little bit on the NBA. You've talked a little bit about the teams that are in the lottery running. What about on the other end of things? We The, the, the Celtics seem to be in the headlines these days. The Warriors defending champs have been off to a bit of a struggle, but they did beat the Celtics recently. Who has your eye at the top of the, at the top of the league? Yeah, certainly it has been Boston so far. They've uh, had an historic offensive performance, uh, which has started to wane a little bit of late, but for much of the season, they've had an offense that not only is way above the league average, not only is it, just in raw terms, points per possession, the best in NBA history. This is a high offense environment. That is not a huge shock, but it's almost at one point, five points per hundred possessions better than the second best team wow. in the <laughs> NBA. And that's, that started to narrow. That's but even the, after the, that stinker they put up last night against the Clippers. Well, it's starting <laughs> to narrow a little bit now. Now the gap is down to about three points per hundred possessions, but the big story throughout most of the year is this historic offense. They're mm-hmm. sharing the ball, shooting the three-pointer exceedingly well. Uh, and so they've just been fantastic. But outside of that, I would say. Oh, so real quick, biggest, before you, before you oh, move yeah, up the ahead, Celtics, what, remind us what they've done on the coaching front. Because they they were so happy with this first-year coach, and then things go south with them, and they have to kind of unexpectedly depart. How has that impacted their performance? And does the new guy get any credit for what they've done? Yeah, Joe Missoula is their new coach. He's still officially an interim coach. They 
suspended officially Ime Yudoka due to an improper relationship that he had with someone who worked under him, uh, although it, it seems very unlikely that it, he will ever return there. And so Joe Mazzulli, it's, it's hard to say. You know, he was on their staff last year. He actually was promoted from the back of the bench. He wasn't one of the lead assistants last year to be the head man, only 34 years old. And he's been a big part of them continuing to move the ball better, get more penetration they really just seem to have a great feel for offensive basketball this year. I think he, he's been part of that. Uh, he's been a steady hand. He's helped them emotionally move past uh, the suspension of this coach uh, who was largely beloved in the locker room. So he's been doing a great job. It's been evolutionary and how much credit between him and some of the additions that they've had and just the internal improvement, you know, it's always tough to parse that stuff, but he certainly has been very prominent. We just, when we did our award show last week, he was my coach of the year. Oh, Nate, Nate, I'd love to ask you about one other team in the East. Hold on, hold on Eric. Rook, oh, sorry, let, ask, let me ask one more question about the Celtics. Just because, I'm going to ask a question about continuity of roster. What do we know about continuity of roster and does it help on offense? Is it up on defense? The key, they've had a couple of key pieces that have been there together for a number of years now. Do we know anything about the importance of is, is, is continuity important? Well, it's very hard to study. And the reason for that is selection bias, because, yeah, yeah right. if your team's if your team's good, you're going to keep it together. If you didn't meet expectations, then you're going to make changes. So generally teams that are good and you have reason to believe that they could improve those are the teams that stay together if you're bad then you're going to change things up and so it makes it a really difficult subject to study certainly anecdotally many people discuss why that's really important and i think you are seeing it in terms of the offensive flow with this group now interestingly they're worse on defense than they were a year ago part of that is personnel part of it is they're just outscoring everyone so much it doesn't matter yeah, right. uh, that their defense isn't as good. Uh, but, you know, just in terms of the communication, I mean, clearly their offense is flowing better. They have more drives, higher percentage of assisted buckets. So I think in this case, certainly it, it is helping them. And, and a lot of these guys like Smart, Jalen Braun, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, you know, played together for a number yeah, of years. Right. But it is exceedingly hard to study because you have that selection bias in there. Thank you. Eric, I jumped in on you. Sorry no, about no, that. No, no, it's ahead. okay. The only thing I was going to ask Nate about is the team that when they want to put the clamps on you, that Milwaukee Bucks team, remember, in my view, they're the healthy defending champs. Last year, they were very banged up. I think they would have had a very good shot to win the title again last year. They're the number two team in the NBA defensively right now. That team, when it decides to really play defense, it's hard to score. So how do you see a potential Bucks celtics matchup? Because to me, those are two teams that are elite and above everyone else in the East. Yeah, I know we're short on time here, but I, I think it, that is a it was a classic matchup last year without Middleton. And I'm not sure I buy that if Middleton is healthy, the Bucks automatically win that series because Boston, most of the games they won – it was a close series, but the games that Boston won ended up being relatively comfortable. So you don't know how that would have played out necessarily. But yeah, Milwaukee, particularly with the rim protection they have, they shut off the rim. But the other thing they're doing that they weren't doing in last year's playoffs is they're taking away the three-point line much more. That's been a big emphasis of Mike Boonelzer in camp. And they 
are have their rim protection just as good as it was last year when Brooke Lopez didn't really play much, but he was back in the playoffs. He's back now, been maybe the best rim protector in the NBA. So, and then you got a great defender on the perimeter and Drew Holiday as well. So, yeah, they're the Bucks have always been a defensive team and they're going to continue to ride that. The question about them is more can they score in the playoffs? But that defense will keep them in it with anybody. So just quickly, 10 seconds. I, I'll take the Bucks and the Celtics, and I'll give you the other 15 teams. Are you okay with that? Oh, interesting. You're talking about in the East or just to win in the, the East, East? In the East, in the East. Uh, no, I'm not okay with that. I think I think it's clearly a better than 50% chance that one of those two teams will come out. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, the, Nate. The question would be just the Celtics on their own. I think that, that was one that we actually talked about on our show. But, yeah. Interesting. For sure. All right. Well, listen, we're going to get you back to talk basketball once we get more into the thick of the season. But thanks for joining us today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure, kid. Nate Duncan, you can catch him on Dunked on Basketball, his podcast. You can catch him on the NBA cast, or they've re- recalled that the strategy, strategy stream on the NBA, NBA strategy stream. NBA strategy stream on the NBA pass. Highly recommend that show. Nate Duncan. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the third quarter now. Open segment, <laughs> rapid fire, maybe. We're going to punch list this thing. We got a short one, 13 minutes before we jump into a long interview in Q4 with Javier Fernandez. Talking a little more soccer one more time, World Cup. But, gentlemen, we got the whole crew here. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen's here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Kay Massey. Curious what caught your eye outside the World Cup in the world of sports. Oh, oh come on. We just have to say it and get past it. But uh, all rise, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we talked last show about Judge, and within hours of our sh- closing the show, he was signed. So you feel good about this, I know, because of the way we talked about it last week. I do feel good about it. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a Yankee tradition to have a, a player of that caliber play for their entire career on, on that one team. It's good to see it again. Uh, that has cachet for us uh, romantic traditionalists. Um, the real question from the analytics point is, do they overpay? How many good years do you expect to get out of him? Um, and those things are are still are still wonderful uh, substrates for conversation. And wh- I wonder what I would say. I can't imagine Judge is going to be that much more valuable for four or five years, but I think they'll get a good four or five years more out of him. Then, mm-hmm. of course, they'll have to keep him for another four or five, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like again, I, I, it's not, it's not your, it's not our money, and it's not <laughs> even like what, what would it even mean? Like you know, oh, it's going to be this, you know, albatross of a contract. That's I mean, not... money, money itself is like you know, with a, you know, I mean, Stanton's deal, like it looks almost like he almost looks cheap per year now. Right, oh, like, judge you know, compared six, to the Stanton deal. Oh, compared to the Stanton yeah, deal. Yeah, but five, six years from now, like uh, average annual value of forty million, is that even going to be any like, money at all? Right? Like, what is that going to? That's probably not actually, even going to be top twenty. But actually, you know, that's not the team. I, as much as you know, the Yankees are my team. There's no doubt. I think everybody knows the team in baseball. Though you have to be excited if you're a fan of is the Padres. I mean, here's their first four hitters now: Fernando Tatis. Machado, Soto, and they just signed Bogarts. I mean, holy moly. 
I mean, that <laughs> is a murderer's row of four. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. a much better group of four than any other team has, including the Yankees. That four set of hitters is incredible. That's an incredible yeah. hitting team. And, it no, will I mean, be, it, and they're it, all it, young. That will be an incredible hitting team for a long period of time. It's the best it's the best four hitters since this team had Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, <laughs> Raphael Devers, and JD Martinez one to four. This is what, whatever happened that. to those guys. This is better than that team. You don't think this is a better hitting team? I mean, two of the players are the same, but you don't well, think I this mean, is. I, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of we're, we're talking prospectively about a team that hasn't even realized as opposed to one of the best teams, like probably the best team of the last decade, the 2018 uh, Red Sox. I just point out that Matty D just threw out the, the big four for Phillies, Tur- Tur- Turner, Harper, Schwarber, Rio Muto, but that still doesn't hold the candle to the San Diego top four. Yeah. Let's be honest. To- I mean, Tatis and Soto. Machado. I mean, I could go. I'll, I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back <laughs> offline and add up some wars and let you know. But I mean, you know, either I way, love the pride. I love that the, 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 the Red Sox pride, Shane, is good. Flashing it. No, and I mean, it's, it's, it, it's also it's, it's both pride and and sadness that that yeah, doesn't right. seem so long ago, and they weren't able to hold that. But what thing we're together. also what we're also going to find out here quickly, not quickly, but we'll find out is you know, would you rather have? Let's say you could have total war of 20 for four players would you rather have what the yankees have which is like nine nine one and one or would you rather have four guys that are at five to seven in other words yeah i think the distribution of war among these four padres players is going to be as it was with the red sox that's the issue the yankees one or two guys can be pitched around but you can't pitch around all four of these guys and that's why i'm impressed by what they've assembled yeah All right, guys, let's talk a little bit of uh, college football. It's been a newsy, it's been a newsy week. And in fact, we didn't talk about all that we had to talk about last time and we won't this time either, but we have to start with the news of the day, which is that Mike Leach passed away. He apparently had a cardiac event of some kind over the weekend was found uh, after some time and then hospitalized and never regained consciousness died sometime last night at age 61 Mississippi state coach previously Washington state before that Texas tech, um, uh, a, a, a legend for both his innovation on the field and his uh, irreverence off of the field. Really, quite a character. To lose him, you, he's the big, really the biggest character in college football. It's amazing that he's gone. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing tributes about him today. Um, actually, one of the shows I listened to quite a lot is an ESPN show, and I was hearing Keyshawn John, Johnson talk about him, how he met him not only through uh, various programs that Keyshawn Johnson was involved with, but he just talked about you know, his favorite story. I'll say about Mike Leach was you see coaches on the sideline that have these placards and cards that are like the size of a elephant. And Mike Leach has one little thing, like a, like basically a note card <laughs> and that's not even the plays on it. And they, and Keyshawn asked me, he goes, well, what do you mean? They're all in my head. I know what the plays are. Like, why do I need this card in front of me? And it just, and Keyshawn, uh, was just commenting on the fact that he really was, you know, this kind of offensive genius. He even said he was in the same mold as he considered Bill Walsh, like of that type of offensive genius. And his coaching tree is going to show that people, I'm sure people are going to document this over the next days and weeks, and it'll be famous for the history. And of course he's out the Hal mummy tree, but he's really made his mark. Uh, Even Lincoln Riley, a high profile recent example, but um, that's one of the, ways we judge coaches and he'll go down very favorably on that way. He also had 
two. I, I want to look up his stat. He was coach of the year twice in his 20, I think 21 years. I don't know how many active coaches have multiple years winning that. So he, he was definitely highly regarded beyond just his colorful interviews. Some other news in college football on the coaching front, Deion Sanders to Colorado that happened just before our show last week. Very interesting development. Uh, the portal is open. The portal is more orderly than it used to be. Sometime in the last year, the NCAA said, hey, there's going to be two windows. One of those windows opened last Monday. A thousand players were in on day one. So like 780 entered that day, maybe 220 from grad transfers. A thousand players on day one. It's going to stay that way until mid-January or so. Um, Caleb Williams wins the Heisman Trophy. Notable here because Lincoln Riley, Lincoln Riley's been a head coach six football season. Six. He has three Heisman Trophy winners. It's absolutely absurd. He's fifty. He's fifty percent for his seasons of putting. I think Caleb Williams has a legitimate chance of matching. You know, Archie Griffin. I think he has a very good chance. He claims he just said since he's happy at USC, he may he's only a sophomore. He may stay two more seasons. He has a chance of being a two. That's what he just said the other day. Would you give Would you give him credit if if it takes three seasons to win? Two, would you you'd still put him on the same level as Archie didn't? Archie, I guess, took four to win two, but back in the day, winning it as a junior must have been a big deal. Uh, yeah, I'd put him on the same level. I'd, okay. I'd, if he wins two Heismans, but I think he's the favorite to win it again next year, although I would imagine the bar is much higher just because of historical precedence that they don't want to give someone the Heisman again. Right. Like he better, right. be, he better be head and shoulders above all the other players for him to win it. I, but even a, a bigger hurdle is regression to the mean, but you're right. He's got a couple of, he's got a, a <laughs> couple of hurdles. On. I think it's, I don't, I think it's historical precedence, but you think it's regression to the mean. That's well, you know, the team has to do well too. So Bryce young, many people think Bryce young is still the best quarterback in the country, but Alabama took a step back and with it, his Heisman hopes take a step back. It's, it's interesting. The different pieces that go in last bit on, on, on football is on college football is the, Bowl games. We're not really spending time on it. They're going to get started sometime this weekend. Maybe the first early game that's interesting is the Las Vegas Bowl with Florida going to Oregon State. Florida was disappointing. Oregon State was surprisingly good. Fun matchup out there. Oregon State's actually a nine-point favorite. But Florida has had a great, fun quarterback to watch all year, up and down. But if you want an early bowl to jump on, December 17th, that's Saturday night, I think. The Las Vegas Bowl, Florida, Oregon State should be a fun one. Let me ask you a question. Given the, I'll call it, non-overlapping design of the college football season, meaning I'm pretty sure Oregon State didn't play Florida, and I'm pretty sure also maybe they may have had one overlapping team that played each other. So is this where you rely a lot on the priors? Like, do you start to think to yourself, like, I don't really know what's going to happen in this game. They did have enough games this season, but in some sense, let me think about Florida. Let me think about the SEC. Let me think about Oregon State. Let me think about the whatever they're in, the Pac-12. You know, um, maybe that's a good way to think about it because, again, in a situation with a non-overlapping design, I just don't know how to think about computing their relative strengths. I mean, yeah, I know how to use statistics to do it, but I'm going to rely more on priors, and I, I'd love your guys' reaction I, to that. I, I, I think your intuition is a very good one. The data are sparser in college football. There are more teams, and they play fewer games. So already you've got sparse data, and then it's it's not systematically structured, so that there's not they're not connected necessarily, not as much overlap. So the sparser data directly imply that you need to make greater use of priors. And in fact, right. if you compare the strength of priors in college football models to the strength of priors in professional football models optimal priors you see more weight um in college football 
Um, it's interesting though. I think that I, I don't know what we run our models at some point we start running them with and without priors just to kind of see what the in, what the pure in-season data look like. And um, I, we must have these numbers somewhere. I haven't seen them, but Oregon State's in-season is going to look better than their priors and Florida is probably the opposite. And so, so it's that's why I brought contrast. it up. Exactly. That's right. All right. What about on the professional slate? We are, I think we have four weeks left. And um, we've, we've only got, a, I think the Eagles have clinched and a number of teams have been eliminated, but otherwise a lot is still in play. Um, what are the highlights across the NFL? Well, I think it's worth noting that the Minnesota Vikings are 10 and three, but have a negative point differential. Right. Yeah. They are and 9 and 0 in one score games. Probably some regression to me. I mean, this is why we kind of look at the Minnesota Vikings, which probably also have clinched at this point. And say this is not a team that we really, you know, I, I don't, we don't, I don't think anybody would really kind of put them as a real Super Bowl contender. I mean, maybe anything can happen, but you, I, I would be surprised. They're, they seem to be playing, you know, they are definitely an example of a team whose record reflects more luck than ability. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, just quickly, what uh, what we noticed: um, San Francisco 49ers right now are a wrecking ball. Nobody wants to play that team right now. I think the Bengals now all of a sudden, you know, we have a three great. Hey, real quickly, Eric, on the on the Niners, real quickly, Timo Timo Riske from PFF did a little analysis, simple one. He just looked at win point differential in the NFC after this weekend, and it was the Eagles, Cowboys, and Niners all well above a hundred, and everybody else. The next best was like eighteen plus eighteen or something. There were three teams, head, shoulders, torso, and probably you know, femurs above the rest of the league. And it's those three, including the, I'll, I'll just say in five seconds, I like the three horses in the NFC Eagles, Cowboys, Niners. And I love the three horses in the lead in the AFC right now, the chiefs, the Bengals and the bills. I don't know which of those three in each conference is going to uh, go to the Super Bowl. That's why they play the games and they'll be excited. Well, of those, the Bengals are the one, even though they made the Super Bowl last year, they started out the season relatively disappointing and high expectations, but relatively poor performance. And they've really been coming lately. And it's really only in the last week on. or two. And yeah, I, I guess the 49ers would kind of fall into that same category. And that's Tigers. right. That's right. And I'll, give that's you, right. I'll give you a live update because I will be at uh, Tampa Bay this weekend for Bengals at, uh, for, I'm, at uh, I'm, Buccaneers. I'm so glad you didn't go to last weekend's game. My God, 35 nothing? 35 nothing? No, they scored seven, 35. I know. Seven. It started out 35. <laughs> All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. We're doing uh, interviews in Q4. We're doing interviews in other places of the show as well. But Q4 has become our go-to interview segment since we've been talking remotely over the last two and a half years. This week, we are delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time, Javier Fernandez. Javier is a senior data scientist at Zealous. If you listen to the show, you know about Zealous. We've had a, a number of folks from Zealous on the show over the years. They are providing sports analytics across a number of sports all over the world and have become one of the real leaders over the last few years and famous for their collection of talent. Javier, one of many. Javier is at least historically working on soccer 
He is the co-author of one of the most famous papers in soccer analytics, possibly the most famous paper in soccer analytics, Fernandez and Bourne. It was distributed at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference a few years ago. I'm sure we're going to talk about the title on that, Wide Open Spaces. We'll get into that. But Javier has a PhD and master's in modeling spatio-temporal dynamics that has become vital in the current age of sports analytics because of the spatio-temporal data available. Didn't People didn't know what to do with that before it was available, and now people are making good hay with it. Javier, good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Sure, thanks. Um, really excited to be here in this great show. Thanks for inviting we're, well, we're delighted to finally get you on here. We, we know your, your video's bouncing on and off some, and we're going to live without it, and that's fine. We can make do without it. Javier, tell us where you are calling in from today. Yes, I'm, I'm calling today from uh, home, which is Barcelona now. I moved here in 2014, and yeah, we're pretty, pretty much established here, like a lot of the city, so I'm still living here. Terrific. Okay, so it, we we knew that you had spent time there because I believe you worked for Barcelona, the club, at some point. But just a little bit more background before that. You are from Venezuela originally, is that right? How did how did you? What is your path from Venezuela to Barcelona? And maybe we can get you to working for the club, and then we can go from there. Sure. Yeah. So I was yeah I was born and raised in Venezuela. Did their uh, bachelor in computer science and worked. For some years, like doing, you know, doing applications for 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 banks like mobile banking and backend platforms. But at some point, um, I didn't wanted to pursue like a career in what it was called at that time, all um, artificial intelligence, right? And my parents are from Spain, so it made made more or less sense uh, to move to Spain. So I moved to Barcelona in 2014 to do this masters in AI. And when I was doing uh, or about to do the like the master thesis, I was uh, incredibly lucky to be uh, interviewed uh, by the club, by Barcelona, uh, to do the thesis there. They 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 weren't really sure what to do, but they they wanted to you know to like to start doing something as general as it sounds with data. So I started working there, did the master thesis, and joined as a data scientist. And uh, sometime after that, I became um, head of sports. Analytics at the club, um, spent there some years, I think near five years. And then, yeah, in parallel, I was doing my PhD in AI at that time. And after I finished that, uh, I joined Celos, what is now, I think, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Okay. So you, so at some point you leave Barcelona, at some point you joined Zelos. But real quickly, take us that 2014 moment. Where would you put Barcelona in the world of soccer clubs in terms of their openness and interest in data for for them to hire you that was still pretty early in the soccer data revolution and not all clubs are interested especially if the remit is as vague as that does that does am i am i reading that right Did, was there someone there that was especially interested or open to data in soccer yeah it's a good point i mean i think that at that time the, the club was in good shape you have you know messi Neymar, uh, Suarez, great. Uh, they won, you know, this uh, three titles uh, just when I joined there. So yeah, um, it was a good time to invest like in new technology and new things. And, and there was a, a, in particular a couple of people there that were really interested in, you know, getting to know more how technology could help the club in many ways. But to be honest, when I joined there, they basically told me like, hey, 
we have these Excel files with a lot of physical data. Can you find like stuff, patterns, things that we, we can use that general? So I was like, okay, uh, I'm not sure what patterns and stuff means, but let's try to dig uh, into that. But okay. uh, after, so, yeah. Good, 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 good. So Eric has a question, then Shane has a question. Javier, I would just ask a question about your background. So for our listeners, could you tell us what it means to have, whether it's a master's or a PhD, let's say in AI, as opposed to having one in whether it's statistics or I assume AI in many schools is a branch of computer science. Like what are the skills you learn? What are the kind of applied problems that it makes you, you know, even more equipped to handle? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think that that's the way uh, this kind of master's and programs were framed at that time. Probably now it, they could be called like master's in data science more generally. But yeah, there's there's a lot of statistics there. Uh, there's more or less pretty much focus also on, on the machine learning side of algorithms and things that are um, that kind of statistical learning. But in general, I think it's a good mix between the statistical foundations you need to build these kind of models and uh, the computer science or the more technical foundations you need to do it at scale, right? So it's, it's more or less a mix of those things. Um, mm-hmm. That's talking about the masters. When you think about the, the PhD, it's, more, it's way more focused on your research and what you're trying to do, right? So it's less, uh, less about the, the like, theoretical components they are trying to, to add there. It's more about, you know, what you try to solve that is new and interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shane. Yeah, I guess based on the fact that you kind of work for Barcelona, kind of a question that popped into my mind is kind of, you know, is there kind of within like European soccer, is there any kind of correlation or relationship between how successful or big the club is and how much it kind of embraces and 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 builds analytics into its operations. I could argue in either you know either direction. You know, I mean, obviously, the bigger, more successful clubs just have greater resources to actually, you know, hire analysts and, and imp- implement their 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 recommendations. But on the flip side, I mean, at least in, in in American sports like baseball, analytics was kind of like a way for some of the lesser clubs to catch up or to to have some kind of you know you know to maintain a competitive edge over some of the bigger clubs that had fi- more financial resources. How do you kind of see those dynamics within European soccer? Yeah, so uh, I think that pretty early at the club there was a good idea that. Uh, we wanted to understand like soccer better or the game better. And the club was pretty well known, but what is, you know, popularized as uh, a Barca DNA, but it's basically having like a pretty solid, a pretty, like a pretty clear game model. So the Barca, uh, so Barca knew uh, probably most clubs or every club in soccer that uh, 90% of what matters uh, on, uh, on the game happens off ball and has to do with, you know, the, the other 21 players that don't have the ball, right? So um, something that we did see pretty quickly at the club was saying like, oh, we need other type of data. They knew event data at that moment, but weren't really happy about what we could measure at that point. So they were saying like, hey, let's, let's do this, this, what is now like a pretty, pretty early investment in tracking data. And let's try to really first understand uh, if we can measure these main components that we consider our Barca DNA, if we can measure things that we think are really important for our players, like 
off-ball positioning, uh, uh, breaking lines with passes and, and, and drives. Uh, they have a pretty interesting system. Uh, they, they, they teach players that it's around the ball. It's not, it seems soccer not as a rectangular field, but uh, as a bunch of, of circles, right? So there's different roles depending on the distance of the ball. So we saw pretty quickly like, oh, let's, let's try to do this scientific approach differently from knowing that the ball is getting closer to the, to the goal. Let's really assess with tracking data and with other kind of information, uh, how well our players behaving around the ball and to see if that really, uh, it's a way of measuring how close are our players from, uh, from the model or the, like the game model that the club wanted to implement. Mm-hmm. This is super interesting because it sounds like the analysis was really driven top down by the club, by the, by the domain experts. And um, it, 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 it feels novel to me. Maybe, maybe it's not, but it, it, so often it feels like in this data revolution we've been living, it's the modelers who pitch stuff up to the decision makers. And there, and there's, you know, what we really need is collaboration. We need it moving both directions iteratively, but to hear you describe that, it really sounds like the 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 charge or at least the theoretical direction came really from the traditional side, at least well, initially. It was more, yeah, it, it was more of giving that first step saying like, oh, we need this initial investment and to bring someone. Yeah. But in yeah. that case, it was me and start do, doing things. But actually the first thing, uh, like the first, you know, main goal and task was, oh, Let's let's meet coaches like every week and let's start like writing like very simple algorithms to try to identify these patterns that they are identifying mm-hmm. manually or visually mm-hmm. every week. So yeah. we spent, like, I think, yeah. like near two, two years doing that pretty basically as like every week saying like, OK, uh, what do you uh, tag first? Oh, I tag a attack and defense. OK, what is attack and what is difference? What is a high pressure? What is a low block? Uh, why do you care? And so we started doing this process of uh, we typically call now, you know, creating this culture or this data culture where at the same time, uh, there were the, I mean, I was more, you know, data inclined, was learning the jargon, probably forgetting about soccer to relearn about soccer. Like, okay, how, yeah. how are like, like, like coaches within the club actually thinking about these problems? And on the other hand, I was, uh, you know, providing these tools and this, you know, opening this window for them to say like, oh, uh, you can actually create algorithms in that sense, or you can actually create the, or like say the main keys to detect what matters. If you understand the data you have and the, and the tools we have and the, that these things are possible. So to make an example, I mean, to, to, to provide like a more clear example, uh, we have the game analyst or video analyst. And they, at that time, they were spending like near 20 hours per, uh, per week just tagging a few matches to try to actually get some data and analyze on top of that. So our first main goal was like, okay, let's automate this process. Right. And right. after a couple of years, we were able to compute, you know, the matches for all uh, the whole league and all the teams in, in a few hours. So they mm-hmm. earned a lot of time to uh, dedicate to, you know, properly analyze soccer at the same time, uh, we expanded the amount and the, yeah, and the quality of questions that we can ask because otherwise you're just short of time and just running against time. So that was a good way of learning what was important and, and how would this data driven approach fit within uh, like a more classic or, or, or like a really long standing club, right? 
So from from a political perspective, I love it for two reasons. One, your your, your first step is basically to make their job easier. And you're, you're not trying to do anything new or advance your own perspective on the game. You're literally just trying to model their perspective on the game. Um, so there's a lot of respect to that. And then two, you free them up by doing that. You, you're like, okay, we can put you onto higher value activities, which is great. That's a great use of algorithms in general. It's like, let's, you guys are spending time on the wrong things. You're the experts here. Let's get you into something more valuable. Wait, at what point did this notion of space come into play? How much of it did y'all import from somewhere else? Or how much of it did you learn from the guys in the building? And because space becomes kind of everything, at least in your early papers about soccer. And then, you know, people have used it in other sports since. Sure. So uh, connecting really quick with what you say before is um, since I I have some experience uh, in a more computer science field and working, say, in, in classical companies, developing tech, I saw pretty quickly like, oh, I'm going to become uh, the tech guy here because I'm going to do a lot of work that is not going to be that interesting to me, but I'm going to build a lot of databases and platforms. So there was the tipping point to have this excuse and say, oh, let's let's go for the PhD and let's try to have this parallel thing that motivates me to do that. So I started to work with, uh, with Luke Bourne that at that time already had a incredible amount of papers in different sports. And I was, you know, really, really excited to talk, sorry, to work with him. So I think Luke opened for me the door and then well, my brain in the sense of saying, oh, let's not think about the technical problems. Let's think, think about what is interesting in a practical sense and what is new for soccer. And let's try to find a technical solution for that. So after saying that, uh, I was thinking and asking around the, the club, what is important? What is important in soccer? What is important in this player and that player? And the most common word was space. Everyone was saying space and space and space, right? So we basically say like, okay, uh, definitely measuring space, given that you have such a vast space in a soccer field, you have so many so many players and the dynamics are so complex. We just said like, okay, uh, we definitely need a, a valid, more or less fast, but accurate way of quantifying this, how space ownership or control changes in time, and we need to relate that with important factors like, or to condition that to important factors like the position of the, the location of the ball and the location of, uh, of the players and the opponent's goal, and a little bit of context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to, you, you said something in passing there you were trying to emphasize, but then it went by fast. I, want, I think it's worth underscoring, and that is that you said Luke emphasized to you, let's not lead with a technique or a technology, let's go find out what really matters. And then we'll, we'll figure out the technical solution, but let's start with what matters to them. And um, I think that's, it sounds like super general wisdom for analysts everywhere. So often we get enamored of our tools, right? Or that what's possible. And then we go looking for, we have a person with a hammer looking for nails and this, you, you guys discovered space kind of going about it just the other way around, which is awesome. Um, you have this observation in one of your papers with Luke on the, the wide open spaces paper at Sloan from a number of years ago now that people talk about all the time. In fact, our guest last week, Chris Anderson, a soccer analyst, brought it up unbidden on the show last week. But it was it's on my mind anyway, because people talk about it. I use it as an example. I think not only is it one of the best known examples in sports analytics, I think it's one of the most 
often referred to examples in any field in a paper, everyone knows this observation. The observation, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, I'm sure, but the observation is that, that people say is like, Messi creates value even when he's just walking on the pitch. And so I want to find out just, I think it would be worth doing the whole segment just on that observation, like where that came from, what's the background, how you came about it. And then I, I want to note that rhetorically how valuable it is to have such a, a, a piquant example because people remember it and then people use it. It travels well and it makes the point so well for you. It's, I don't know if you knew how powerful it was rhetorically when you came upon it. So one, can you walk us through that? It'll help us understand their use of space in soccer anyway, but then also along the way, maybe give us a backstory on how you discovered this thing. And Adi, what's the correct pronunciation of piquant again? I think it's P-I-Q-U-A-N-T. Is that piquant? That's the way you spell it. And I pronounce it phonetically, apparently. And Adi's going to tell me I'm doing it wrong. It's, it's um, pronounced piquant. Piquant. Okay. Like, like, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll improve, Adi. I'll improve. Okay, Javier, yeah. over to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, like, it was an interesting thing. We, I think we went step by step and first thing, like, okay, let's, let's first try to quantify a space control, right? Uh, after we, we had a decent model for that. We realized pretty quickly, like, oh, um, it's very easy to earn space if you are not uh, being pressed or if you are not, uh, I mean, depending on context, it's easy to earn space. For example, when the ball is moving away from your goal, center backs earn a lot of, uh, a lot of, of space just by standing still. But that space is not necessarily a space of value. Right. Interestingly, when I discuss this with Barcelona coaches and they and I, I talk about this uh, balance of space and value, they say like, oh, yeah, yeah. When we say space, it's always valuable space. It's not any space. I Which see. Seems, seems obvious, but it's important uh, to make that difference when you're modeling this. So next step um, of working on that was say like, okay, what are like fair ways of quantifying how much space players are creating value through space. And we say like, there are players that are creating value because they're moving. So they create value to themselves. And some other players are creating value to their teammates by, by attracting opponents, right? So we quantified right. that. And, a, and the final layer there was saying like, oh, uh, what if we differentiate between players actually having certain speed, like actually moving and some other players standing still. So it was just adding layers to that framework to start analyzing and, and seeing what difference we could find because we thought that from a soccer perspective it made, uh, um, it made sense, right? Um, but then finally, um, when we started looking at, okay, which players are creating value for themselves and which other players are, are, uh, are creating value for others, you, it, like a main player that was... You know, Javier, let me, let, me, let me interrupt real quickly and make sure I understand. You're, you're, you're saying basically creating value for yourself means they're creating valuable space that they can use. They're, they're doing that around themselves. And the alternative is they are attracting people. So in some sense, hurting their own space, but by doing that, they create more valuable space for other people. Um, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so if you... If you create value for yourself, that means typically that you are moving to be open, right? If you're like if you're being pressed or or like your passing lane is being closed, you just move to be open to to uh, to get the pass. So since since, okay. since this model was all around the ball, we were saying like, oh yeah, 
players are going to create space when moving. However, when we make the difference saying like, okay, let's make the difference between players that are not moving and players that are moving at certain speed, and then analyzing the interactions between players, we just have this very interesting observation saying like, hey, uh, if you see the ratio of how value is being created, the ratio is pretty similar between all the players. Most value is being created in an active way, as we call it in that paper, like running, and few value is created passively. It was something, if I remember correctly, 70, 30, or 80, 20. And then you, we saw Messi, and it was the total opposite. And we're like, really? oh, uh, we were expecting some of that, but it was like incredibly sound seeing that difference. So what is interesting about that concept is that uh, it is pretty obvious to observe that players that are faster, are stronger, are skillful, are going to tend to be better and do great things. But many times, and especially in soccer, skills and um, movements and, you know, and behavior that is not obvious, like standing still in the right moment, like giving this step behind, this, this step forward, can create a lot of value. Like a great example now is Pedri, this Barcelona player. is going to be, I think, an incredible player. And it's really hard, difficult to value him through the current data everyone has because he's always doing this tiny movement. So I'm pretty sure if we run this model on Pedro, it's going to show very similar things as Messi. But mm. back to the, yeah. So hold on, Javier. I've got a clarifying question. I think we've got questions from both Adi and Eric as well. But my first question is, can you distinguish specific behaviors that Messi does that prove valuable? Or is it simply that he is so such a threat to the other team that he attracts so much attention that wherever he is, that people are moving toward him. And so it's not necessarily a specific thing he does. It's just the threat in general. How do we distinguish those two things? Yeah, so that's that's the actual surprising thing. If he's attracting players that he's always doing doing that, his value creation or, or his space of value should be low, right? Because he's, he's not actually having space. But what we did was, I mean, we at that time, already have a pretty strong uh, video-centric um, uh, methodology where every time we saw like tab or metric that seemed to be relevant, we went to the video and said, like, okay, let's let's validate this with the video to see what is actually happening. So there right. are tons, tons of examples where the ball is moving towards the opponent's goal. Of course, defenders are looking at Messi, but also looking at the play and he's able just to stop for a second or to do like like this little step back or just move in a different speed than the say that you know the center of mass of that attack so just by doing that tiny step it's creating an immense amount of value and that keep happening uh later in the last years we have this Jordi Alba Messi relationship and it was based on the same thing of making that step back or that step forward in the just in the in the right moment so I love that, you know, Johan Cruyff quote when he says, when I, uh, when I start running first, I seem faster, right? So it's a lot about emotional, sorry, like, like game intelligence in that sense. Like okay. he seems uh, faster because he's reading that play faster, right? I'm, yeah, oh, I see. I see. I, um, very good. So uh, Javier, thank you for that. And now we're going to get a couple of questions. I'm going to start with Adi because I think his was more of a clarification. And then, and then Eric has a couple of things. Adi. Uh, yeah, so actually, I did have a question. Um, how would you analogize what Messi does to say what great players like in basketball, Giannis might do, where we drag so many defenders, leaving so many players open, or Aaron Donald in, in football, you just have to guard him with multiple linemen, leaving other 
people with more space. Um, and, and to what you're describing, which sounds to me a little bit different, where he's kind of like fainting and changing his speeds uh, to cre- give other people more space. So how would you kind of integrate those those comparisons? Yeah, so uh, a key thing in soccer is that you have 22 players, right? So there's a lot of players, a lot of space, and the ball is incredibly faster than the players. So what you want to do is to really move the ball as fast as possible and to try to break the defense as much as you can. So most of the time, he's going to be really, like, really marked and really pressed. The um, defenders recognize that, and you're going to have people on top of that player. But since the, the, the ball is moving to one side and the other side, there's moments in which basically they distract for a second or they're just, you know, focused in a more relevant action at that time. And that's the right time to earn space. If you see players, and there's, there's this famous thing in soccer that I guess happens in other sports that is visual scanning, right? That they're all, all the time, like, moving his, their, their, uh, their head around to try to understand, to have this map uh, or, like, visual map of where players are. So what mm-hmm. you're trying to do is more or less that, how can I reposition all the time uh, to be in the right spot to get the ball next? And that's something uh, mm-hmm. that in the Barcelona D- DNA, there's like these three R things. And um, I don't, uh, I think it's not, it's not three R's in English, but one main R there is relocate. Uh, you pass, you move, you relocate. You're always trying to be mm-hmm. in an open passing lane. So he's going to be pressed, but when the ball, the, the ball moves, he's going to move, and everyone is moving around. He just seems to be like smarter in that sense of um, you know moving in the right moment uh, when you're about to get the ball. It's surprising that you don't always have one guy on top of Messi trying to uh, avoid him to do that, but it just has, haven't happened ever. So. Uh, has to be like 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 a pretty quick skill um, to put into practice within the game. Mm-hmm. Javier, Eric's got a question and he's got an update for us because I think he's sitting over there watching Messi play. He's not satisfied just talking about Messi on tape 10 years ago. He wants to watch him play real time. Eric. Well, I'll just t- give my Messi observation first and then I'll ask my question. So just since we were talking, Javier, what, exactly what you were talking about happened. Uh, Messi broke away at midfield. Um, did about eight different moves and different speeds, broke around three guys into the box. Of course, they're not going to foul Messi in the box. And then he put a ball on Suarez's foot that I'm pretty sure I could have hit in. It was such <laughs> a beautiful play by Messi, but it was entirely because he basically the entire defense got drawn to him. It made no difference. And uh, so now it's 3 nothing Argentina. But that's not my – I was just commenting it's exactly what you were saying. But it relates to my question, which is – do you guys have a concept, and you even talked about this, about passing backwards, et cetera, about valuable space? Like lots of people can create space, but can they create space where the expected number of goals is actually valuable? And so how do you guys think about space versus, uh, you know, you, you when Kate introduced you, he says you study modeling spatiotemporal dynamics. Well, that's a spatiotemporal dynamics. The space that you're in, has different values. So how do you guys think about that? And just to piggyback on that question, how do you kind of think about that different players actually won't need different amounts of space? Messi seems to like, you kick the ball anywhere near him, it just kind of (laughs) sticks to his foot like it's glue, as opposed to another player that, you know, a a lesser non-Messi player that like actually hits it and it bounces a bit and he actually needs more space to contain. 
Yeah, I mean, both, both things are great. On the last comment, I think that's more related with individual skill, and it's definitely an, an important thing. If you, in this case, in this model, we didn't include like player IDs of any kind, but if you will do that in a space control model, you will see that for the same amount of space, some players have more control than others, right? Because they're disabled, like in the Messi case, able to re, re, receive the ball in less than one square meters with three players on top of him while other players can't do that. So that's an important thing. And with the other question that, that's very, um, it's critical in soccer, always trying to contextualize so we understand what is value, right? Value are in the, in the valuable space in soccer is, is changing dynamically and pretty quickly. So at that time, we did something like, uh, like more simple. It was saying like, oh, what if we learn from where the oh, uh, defending team is going to be placed according uh, condition on the ball location, and we and, and, and we're gonna call that space the valuable space. But what I will do now, and that that is what we did uh, in this later work in my PhD thesis and a lot of you know um, related papers were uh, thinking about this expected possession value framework. Say like, oh, if we take into account uh, the twenty-two players, we understand context in terms of um where are the different uh, lines uh, where where's the actual space to uh, to put a a pass in how far are we from the opponent's goal how likely is that i make any other pass how likely is that i can dribble from here and all of those things you get a really uh a really nuanced but uh definitely not obvious surface telling you like oh here's where the valuable space is what is very interesting is that players are and, and especially great players are able to to identify that mm -hmm. but, uh, but the most important concept is that that is changing all the time uh, mm -hmm. but yeah when you think about space uh, space of value is what matters just creating space is not uh, it's not something that is going to put the best players or the best spatial players on top mm -hmm. Javier one last question and then we're gonna have to let you go unfortunately um, this this skill you're describing messy, it it you start i start wondering about similar players in other sports over time and the first thing that comes to mind is Wayne Gretzky and i'm curious whether anybody has you know gone back and dropped some computer vision on some old gretzky tape or something or even just had conversations with someone like gretzky or maybe the same would be said for the great point guards in nba history do do they think about it the same way? Do it, it, is, would would we learn anything if we saw some parallels about the? Is there anything general here about these sports and and those who excel at them in this distributor role? Yes. So I'm not sure that that's that player specific skill can be like can be trained or learned. There's probably a lot going on there. But what could be more valuable or like more structured probably through the data is oh, what if we identify bunch of players, a lot of players that can create space in the same way, right? That can have this same role of space creation. And can we separate those players and see uh, what are they doing and, and when are they doing that? So we can teach other players, like especially if you think about young players, uh, um, mm -hmm. how to do that. Something that I always thought um, to be incredibly valuable, and I, I know it, it happens in some other places, is showing to younger players videos of top players but in a very specific way, knowing that that player can learn that. So that's mm -hmm. what I probably do. I'm not sure if if it's repeatable to say like, oh, let's let's create space like Messi does it, but probably like 
uh, fault nine or like fault stream, like so, sorry, fault winger kind of players like Messi do, because there's some other players that do similar movements and similar space creation. And depending on their skills, they do it a little bit differently, yeah. but the outcome is probably similar. Right? Yeah. Yep. Terrific. So interesting. Um, listen, man, we could talk to you for a long time. I hope we get a chance to talk to you in the future. Delighted to finally have you on here. Um, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about the latest and greatest that you have going on, but we'll do that in the future. Thank you for making time, especially thank you for making time in the middle of a, a semifinal for the World Cup, but delighted to talk to you, Javi. Sure, thanks. It was, it was great. Uh, it's, it's always great to you know, share things about space and soccer and stuff, and well, it's uh, probably a like, good timing while the, while the World Cup is still running. So yeah, thank you all. See you soon. Very good. Javier Fernandez, he's senior data scientist at Zealous. He has been doing soccer analytics kind of from the dawn of soccer analytics in the 2010s and uh, including a long stint with Barcelona, where some of this spatio-temporal analysis really was born. Guys, uh, I want to get some reactions to that. Um, I thought uh, I've got my own reactions, but let me open it up to y'all first. Just a couple of quick ones before we wrap up for the show. Yeah, I mean, I guess my quick reaction would be kind of connecting a couple of things that came up during the conversation. We talked about Luke Bourne being an influence, obviously, on Javier's work. I think Luke Bourne actually wrote the paper that, you know, would be, you we could use to answer the question about Gretzky being so amazing what he is because you know they they have that amazing paper where they're doing very high kind of resolution spatio-temporal modeling of basketball performance and decision making you know taking okay. into account the position of all the kind of players on the field if we yep. had that if we could somehow from old grainy 80s video data get that xy coordinate stuff for hockey then i think that's where gretzky would really shine because he just always seemed to be able to find the open man or like make the move that was needed to happen for a scoring opportunity i really think that 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 would be if we had the data for it that would be kind of the modeling framework for really kind of teasing out the brilliance of wayne gretzky awesome Gretzky also score an incredible amount like insane yeah no i mean he 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 scored the most most goals of, of all time, but he scored. He had twice as many assists as he did goals. So it's so actually if you, quite if you took, to Gretzky. Like if if you took his goals out, and he's the number one goal scorer of all time. If you took his goals out, he still has more points than everybody else. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, but I'm just going to have to say it. Sometimes things are so obvious you don't need analytics. <laughs> well, well, that's the, the question. Is like what you would learn from from that kind of analysis, and, would, right. and I, I don't know the answer to that. My 15-second takeaway was I loved your analogies between that and other sports and why soccer might be different. Like, what about people in hockey that create space, basketball that create double teams, football, the number one receiver? We talked about the value of the number two receiver. Well, that's because you have a number one receiver. So I thought those analogies were great. Aaron Donald drawing a double team on, like, every play. That helps to be able to kind of quantify that. So I just, I mean, he, he's, he noted that that was important, but that this was, he, Messi was doing something on top of that. Like there was even, he was, he was, he was exacerbating that, that threat that already draws extra attention by the way he behaved. So the things that stood out to me were really the way this thing got developed. I think there's such good general lessons here for analysts. First, this idea that he spent two years just tagging what, the, what the what the coaches were doing that he basically said let's just start with modeling what you're doing and they're going to make their job easier they're going to free up their time they're going to learn a lot in the process he said that luke 
emphasize, let's not start with a tool or technique. Let's go find out what matters and then we'll figure out the right tool or technique. It's not leading with every man with a hammer thinks the world's a nail. It's the opposite of that. And then this, he said this in passing, he said, every time we'd see something in the data, we'd go to video. And how many analysts do that? How many analysts have the ability even to, to toggle back and forth between data, which is super, I mean, obviously abstract as it can be, and then go see what's actually going on. And that, I think it's no accident that the best soccer analytics and kind of the dawn of really cutting edge soccer analytics happened in a club. So it happened not just in a club, but in Barcelona, one of the top clubs in the, in the world at the time where they have this dialogue and this iteration with guys at the very, very top of the game. So I, just, I think it's just a super interesting case study on the evolution of, um, of, of sports analytics. All right, guys, we'll stop there. That's a long Q4 to end here. And the, the probably the last in a series of soccer interview guests we've had for a while, but I think we've gotten a lot deeper this time than we have in the past because of the quick iterations. All right, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Thank you guys for joining us. On behalf of the whole crew, all of whom are here in the last segment, Adi, Shane, Eric, and Kate, on behalf of our boss, Matty Datz, the producer, and our associate boss man, Dion Simpkins, thank you guys for joining. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.